Good evening, everyone. I am Ajay Ramasubramaniam, co-founder and CEO of Hindsight Ventures. Welcome to the twelfth episode of Founders Fifty Two. Before we jump in to the conversation with Moaz Hossam, who is the co-founder of Rology and also happens to be the first Egyptian startup on Founders Fifty Two, I'd like to give you a quick walkthrough of who we are and what is Founders Fifty Two all about. So, as Hindsight Ventures. as anyone tuning in would know we are an africa focused startup accelerator and entrepreneurship support organization while we are headquartered in india and operate in different parts of the world as startup rezo hindsight ventures was born in in mid late 2020 with the objective of enabling and supporting entrepreneurs building in africa for africa to that effect over the past couple of years we have implemented close to 14 pre accelerators and accelerator programs across the continent built a, a network of 184 startups who have gone through our programs there are program alumni we have worked with some marquee partners which are corporations like microsoft and ab inbev and absa bank to run corporate backed accelerators we work with the likes of uncdf for running fintech programs and we run our own branded programs the the most uh, well known one being wazo challenge which has run about three different editions and quite a few of our companies have gone on to raise significant venture investments and grown and scaled within the continent that brings us to what is founders 52 all about uh, the first part is a more straightforward one founders with are the ones that we are having this conversation with and 52 being the number of weeks in a year so founders 52 is about bringing a founder on on twitter space to have a conversation to talk about their journey of building their their venture and we do that every wednesday night 9 o'clock nairobi time or east africa time and the whole idea or thought process behind this is that there is no better tool than storytelling and there is no better way to get inspired than listening to someone who is one amongst you and who has built something and shared their experiences so founders 52 is all about sharing founders experience of building a company and sharing their journey journey of getting into an accelerator journey of hiring their first recruit journey of getting into a new market within the continent uh, journey of making those pivots it's not always easy being an entrepreneur so uh, this is this is what founders 52 is all about and with that i'd like to welcome moaz hosan uh, moaz welcome on the show uh, thank you so much jay thank you for inviting me Awesome. So before we jump into the conversation and talk and learn more about the work you do at uh, Rology and and what your journey has been, if you can briefly tell our our audience, we have a live audience, and and like I told you before we started the chat, uh, this gets recorded. It it goes on on Apple Podcasts, it goes on Spotify, bunch of places, which is where we we get the viewership and and also our our newsletter, uh, which which goes to close to seven thousand stakeholders from the startup ecosystem, and I'm sure they will all want to know. who is moaz uh, before he started uh, rology what was moaz doing and what has been your academic background what has been your professional background so a little bit about yourself <laughs> sure uh well my name is moaz hosam moaz hosam uh i'm from egypt uh, like you mentioned before uh, specifically from a place called damanhur in the northern part of egypt um my background before rology was well my educational background is i have a business degree from the university of alexandria um and my professional background was actually kind of mixed so i started early on in uh, a junior programmer role i was really interested in the technical side 
on how to write code and so on. And I did that for almost a year, maybe 11 months. Uh, and then quickly it became clear to me that this is not where my heart is because I did not really enjoy it as a profession as much as I thought. And I found myself more and more uh, spending time with the business people, enjoying the conversation and the that side of um, the business more. Um, so I switched. I worked for um, a few companies in Egypt, and then I moved on for about two years when I worked in Malaysia and Singapore, but mainly Malaysia, uh, doing um, business development for an Egyptian company that was establishing shop at that time in Malaysia and cosmetics, import and export in general, but the, the main focus was uh, on cosmetics. And then um, after two years of doing so, I realized that I really would love to start my own business. I would love to have my own um, startup. So I came back to Egypt and I started my first startup, Bifurology, which was, uh, my startup was called Okani. It was a group buying or social buying um, startup. But unfortunately, after two years, it became very clear that this is not going to be a success. So from then on, I moved on to urology. So that's briefly what I was doing before urology. And it's it's very interesting that uh, you've done what all you have. I mean, is writing code can be boring. I mean, uh, humans are, are better <laughs> to interact with than, than computers. But at yeah. the same time, some, some of the things that you spoke about, uh, uh, what kind of uh, really caught my attention was the time that you spent in, in Southeast Asia, which is not a bad place if you're into e-commerce or or learning how to build and scale companies. So before you started Rology, and the, the other thing that you mentioned, the, the, the previous startup, uh, and failure also a lot of time is a, is a big instigator of, of doing bigger things. Before you started Rology, the time that you spent in Southeast Asia and the failed startup, how much do you think contributed to you building Rology? I think it's actually very, uh, very important for me moving to, to startups in general um, because uh, working in Egypt, Egypt, while Egypt does have a very good economy and have a very active business sector, it's it's mostly Egyptians. You don't really get that much exposure to uh, companies from different places, even if you have in all of the uh, corporates or the multinational companies, they rely almost 100% on Egyptian workforce. So you don't really get much exposure outside of the Egyptian business culture. So going to Malaysia, Malaysia is, is much more diverse, more cosmopolitan in a way. You get a chance to work with Chinese companies, with local Malay companies, with companies from Europe, from India, from all over, really, uh, Japan as well. So that was interesting. And you start to see how the world is very interconnected and how there is just this, at that time, this is, this was like maybe 2012, 2000, early 2013. E-commerce was very, very strong at that time, especially in that part of the world. That's probably why I was really focusing more on e-commerce because I witnessed how the business that I was working on was being eaten away by um, e-commerce competitors who were just going directly for the consumer and somehow removing um, the traditional shopping experience. And it just became clear to me that this is the easiest way of doing business. This is the future. This is where it's going. Um, and you start to see that we need something like this back uh, back at Egypt. Um, at that time, 
I think the only e-commerce player in the Middle East was uh, Souq, Souq.com, which is now Amazon. They got acquired by Amazon later on. So I felt like there is there is a lot of space for a new company to grow and so on. But it turns out that I wasn't a success in doing so. Now there are a few uh, e-commerce giants in, in, in Egypt and in the Middle East in general area, but I wasn't one of those. But that's what led me in that direction. No, and, and also from, from what you said, right? I mean, you, you mentioned Souk, but if you look at companies like Fowry, there is Swivel, there is even there's so many of them. And, and Egypt is, uh, I mean, while in the context of Africa, and then if you look at it from a MENA perspective, Egypt, uh, Egypt has, has a lot going on uh, internally uh, as, a, as a country and, and the kind of whether it is investments coming in, the kind of uh, success stories that, that you've had locally and, and, re, and, and scaling in, in MENA as the region. Uh, how how much do you think such success stories have contributed to to people starting up in Egypt? Yeah, so like you said, um, it was just Souk back then. Souk was not an Egyptian startup, uh, but still, it was probably the biggest one. Fauri was big, but uh, they didn't really brand themselves as a startup at that time. Um, right now, like you said, we have Fauri, we have Swivel, MTN, Halan is also a huge startup in Egypt, and then you have um, Visita, you have a lot of big names coming out of Egypt. And um, at that time, it was hard doing a startup because the ecosystem for for entrepreneurial um, activities in Egypt was almost non-existing. It was very, very, very small compared to today. Even all the way up to 2018, when we raised our seed round for Rology, it was still very, very small. Um, at that time, 100K for a seed round, 100K shake for a seed round was huge. Now we see it go up to one or two millions, and some people are actually raising even four millions for seed rounds. So, um, yeah, Egypt is now kind of one of the main hubs when it comes to the Middle East and Africa for, for being... Uh, for starting any startups, for growing startups. And it comes, of course, naturally, because when you look at the size of the population, you have a population of about 105 million people. Internet penetration is almost at 80%. Um, the use of smartphones is almost everywhere. Everyone, Almost everyone would be using <clears throat> smartphones. Everyone is connected. Everyone is more familiar and more at ease using um, technology. And uh, Egypt also has a very sizable um, population of engineers. So you have many engineering colleges in Egypt turning out many, many engineers year in and year out. Many of those people turn out working for software and so on, not just in Egypt. They go everywhere. So it makes sense that Egypt is now being a hub uh, for a startup, but it took some time. So it took some time back when we were doing it early on. It was uh, very, very small. It was very early. Of course, Egypt and technology go back a long way, man. I mean, Egyptians figured out trigonometry and geometry much before the world did by building yes. pyramids. So <laughs> it, it, it definitely does uh, does kind of uh, sink. Now, yeah. when, when you talk to investors in in particularly in, in North America, they would they would say go inch wide and mile deep, right? It it, it cannot be more it cannot be more truer than what you're doing at. Rology, you have not just identified healthcare or healthcare yeah. technology, but within that you have gone into a specialization which is radiology, right? Yeah. What right. what made you kind of go that narrow as as a focus area? Um, so 
remember when I said I started working as a junior programmer? I was working for a software house that was specializing in, in med- medical software in general, uh, HIS, RIS, and so on, the EMRs, and all of this stuff. And my current co-founder, who was the 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 CEO of that previous company, he's now my current co-founder of Prology, uh, he just noticed the problem. It really came from being on the ground, being visiting hospitals, going to hospital, talking to people. It was as easy as I remember him saying what he was telling me about this. I was like, well, how did you even notice this this problem of the shortage of radiologists? I guess maybe now is a good time to let the people know that the problem we're solving is a shortage and misutilization of radiologists, that those radiologists are the doctors who are in charge of interpreting radiology scans. And there is a huge shortage, not just here in Africa. It's actually a global issue, but our focus is Africa and the Middle East. And he said, I always notice there is a lot of people standing in, in front of the radiology department, just patient queuing up for long lines in front of the radiology department. And he was curious, well, why is radiology specifically um, having this problem? And then that's when we went this that rabbit hole of figuring out why is there's a queue in the radiology department? Why is there is not enough radiologists? Is it a problem of equipment? Is it a problem of uh, human resources and so on? So... We went very niche, but we f- what we found out is radiology is actually the first step you would be going through as a patient in your treatment plan. If, if you're, I mean, I'm sure almost every one of us have been through a radiology department at some point of our life. Whenever you are sitting in front of your physician and you're saying, I'm, I'm feeling so and so, most of the time they're going to be asking for some lab tests, whether it's pathology or radiology, and then you will have to come back with the results of your test. And from that on, your treatment plan starts. They say, oh, okay, see, that's a problem. Let's treat you in this way. So it's it's one of the main steps in the treatment of any patients. But because radiology is radiology is very unique from all other kinds of medicine, and, and it's really, there is almost zero interaction between the patient and the doctor when it's radiology. Um, I don't think any one of us here would ever remember sitting in front of a radiologist or discussing his results with, or her results with a radiologist. It's always done with your clinician, with your doctor. But the radiologist is always, they refer to them as a physician's physician, right? So it's a doctor to the other doctors, simply two doctors talking about the patient. So it's, it's very unique in that regard. That's why perhaps most of us never notice it. In our day-to-day, you may notice a shortage of surgeons, a shortage of equipment, a shortage of medicine, but you don't really notice the radiologist because you don't see the radiologist. But he or she is the first step in your treatment plan. So that's why we went really deep into that because we've seen that this is a fundamental issue and if it's solved, it would really have a huge um, positive impact on the standard of care that patients receive regardless of whatever ailment they have. Um, so it made sense that we should start from this. And radiology also have this aspect to it where it's digital-based. So anyone who does anything that has to do with software and medicine and software and healthcare, you know that one of the main issues is getting the doctors and the nurses to actually use the technology. The technology may be very able, may be very... Um, suitable for whatever they need but the main challenge has always been getting them to actually adapt the technology and use the technology radiologists are different because radiologists for ages have been using digital tools for for decades now they're slowly have moved away from 
what maybe the stereotypical understanding of most of us, where it's a film that you, the doctor looks at and so on, as we see maybe in movies. No, it's, it's mainly done digitally. It's software, it's machines and software and so on. So radiologists tend to be uh, tech savvy and they tend to be early adopters of technology. So that makes it actually an easier point of uh, disrupting. It makes it an easier point of digitizing healthcare is if you go through radiology, that's people who are familiar with technology, who are, when you compare them to the other kind of doctors, are more adapt adapting of technology and more at ease with technology. And also, they are very fundamental. And they, once you improve their productivity, once you improve their work, you actually have a very good uh, positive impact on the standard of care of patients. So that's why we went for radiology. It just seemed like it's a perfect starting point if you want to help disrupt medicine or move healthcare to the future. So just like that, your co-founder noticed that there is this, this skew up and then you guys went down the rabbit hole to discover the problem. So he was, yeah. a, he was the, the person who, who actually came up with the, the problem as, as, as an identified area to, to explore. And, and what was your first step? I mean, after you, you did your, your initial discovery or, no. or scraping around to find out, uh, I, I mean, this is, uh, again, it's, it's very niche, like you said, you're building a, a, almost like a B2B marketplace or a platform of sorts. Yeah, exactly. Who do you acquire first? Do you acquire hospitals first? Do you acquire radiologists first? How, how, does it, how does the model work for you? Yeah, so for us, we, yeah, so there was a plan that we had, and then there was the reality. So our plan was to go for, yeah. You know that Mike Tyson quote when he says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that's what happened. Uh, we had our plan that we should be going for the radiologist first because we felt that it makes more sense. Because if you go to the hospital or the radiology clinic and you say, give me your uh, scans, I'll do the interpretation. They're going to be asking you, well, who's the radiologist? Who do you have? How many of them? How can we trust you? What's the standard? Uh, service that you're going to provide to us so it just made sense that we get the radiologist first <laughs> but in reality what happened is i feel like maybe we were underestimating the severity of the problem um, we were at that time part of a, an inspiration inception uh, sorry an accelerator program uh, at the american university in cairo that program is called vlab or venture lab uh, and we were just in the midst of preparing for one of these demo days, kind of, that we all go through in any accelerator. And at that time, we we didn't even have a prototype. I remember our uh, CTO was sitting on his desk, just, we were working from a co-working area, of course, we didn't have any offices. And he's just coding away, trying to come up with a prototype. Me and my co-founder were preparing for the next day, demo day, the slides, the rehearsal and all of this. And then we got a phone call from our, who's now our chief medical officer, who was also a co-founder. And he said, you know, I heard of this place in a rural area of Egypt who's desperately looking for some radiologist to go and do some reporting for him. Why don't you guys give him a call just as a validation, you know? Just let's validate if, if he would love our solution. And we figured, you know, that's a good idea. He's probably our target. If we say, what if we have a solution that does so-and-so, would you be interested on? That's really all we had in mind. We didn't, we were not at all planning to, um, to acquire him as a client in any way. And then we, we made the call, and it's a funny story because... So we're talking to the guy and we say, yes, hello, doctor, so-and-so. We're this company. We, have, we know you are looking for radiologists to help you with your interpretation for your patients. So we have 
a product that does so and so, you'd be able to send us your scans remotely. And then one of our radiologists would view them and do the reporting. All of this will be done remotely. You'll get your results within 24 hours for your patients. And he said, oh, so you're crazy. Or in Arabic, he said, you guys are crazy, right? Yeah. And we said, well, no, we're not, we're not crazy. And of course, at the time, it felt like, oh, we missed something. He's going to say, this is bad. I'm, I have no interest in this product. So he said, no, we're not crazy. And he said, uh, what you're saying cannot be done. Nobody does this. And he said, well, we do. And we got a little bit defensive, as you do when someone attacks something so dear to you. I said, well, we do. And he said, fine, if that's true, I will send you cases from tomorrow. Send me your price list, and I'll sign a contract early tomorrow. <laughs> from that point on, it went from preparing to the demo day to forget all of this. We have a client. We need to bring this guy up and, up on, and running tomorrow. And of course, we didn't have any radiologists, Jay. We had zero radiologists at that time. <laughs> so it became um, one of the co-founders is making calls to acquire a radiologist. The Our CTO is now has a new timeline with you need to get this prototype up and running by tomorrow. So can you imagine telling some engineer your timeline went from weeks to hours and then one, two of the co-founders are preparing the price list and just how we kind of get the contracts and all of the stuff that you don't think about but you need to run a business. And we actually ended up staying at the co-working place all the way up till six in the morning, seven in the morning. And I remember they came and they said, we need to lock up the space. This is it. This is the end of working hour. It's midnight. We lock up the space now. And we said, look, we're not leaving. You can lock up and you'll leave us inside. So the guard, just security guy, he said, you know what? I'm standing outside when you need to leave. Knock on the door and let you out. And we stayed all night working on it. And we actually got some on board. We got a radiologist who believed in the idea. He said, you know what, I want to try this. We got a prototype up and running by the end of next day. And we sent him a price list and he signed the contract. And he's been working with us ever since. And to tell you the truth, until this moment, he doesn't know that he was our first client. He's still not aware of it until this moment. We have done almost 800,000 patients so far, but he still doesn't know that his patients were the first so you have your plan, but then you have the reality. So I guess the point is you just have to adapt. Of course, you have the plan, mm -hmm. and then you have the plan with all alphabets spelled in probably font size 72 and in bold. And yeah. <laughs> many a times you're you're completely blindsided because what you think is the plan is uh, is just your hypothesis. And yep. when you go out there, and, and there is, there's no better way than validating than going to a customer who is either going to pay you or not going to pay you with a, exactly. with a valid reason. And Absolutely. the customer who pays is more often than not, he or she is, is always right. <laughs> and you cannot say, <laughs> you, you cannot walk away from that. That is reality. That is the reality. Yeah, yeah very true. They, they yeah. get it. They completely get it. And before your demo day, if you, if you actually, without having a radiologist onboarded, you had your first customer, someone did a good job selling over there. So con congratulations <laughs> to you on that one. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that was a good day. So that brings me to, to the point where the, the AI reader comes in. And the last six months or so have been crazy with the kind of evolution that AI itself has had. Uh, how, yeah. how has that impacted a business like yours, which is super sensitive, given that here you're talking of the life of a human or, or health records? Uh, how, how critical has your engineering been? How has that had to keep pace with evolution in AI? And does the small matter of uh, IP come in anywhere? 
Yeah, so so AI is actually it's it's a very interesting topic. When you look at AI in healthcare, you see that radiology is leading the way. The highest number of FDA cleared uh, algorithms is for radiology, uh, followed by cardiology. Although you could somehow count cardiology as part of radiology, but if you don't, then it's going to be radiology, and after that, cardiology. So. And when it comes to healthcare and AI, radiology has been leading the way, and it has been a point of discussion among radiologists for, I think, for maybe 15 years now. You can go and search, and you will find papers, and you will find talks about radiologists who say, well, we're going to be replaced by AI. I know that right now, maybe most people outside of the tech space feel like AI is just something that just happened in the last, in the last six months or the last year. But before ChatGPT, it has been a point of discussion and research for ages. Um, and for the last 10 years specifically, it has been a very active topic and there has been a lot of efforts done. So we were keeping an eye on AI from the beginning, although we understood that it's too early, not just for the technology, but even for us, because it takes substantial amount of capital if you want to develop some AI work. You need some a lot of money. And we realized that Within the context we are, we're not going to be able to get that kind of money. So as much as we believed in it and we see, we saw at that time how Rology's model is actually the perfect model for the AI, for AI. Because, you know, the main problem you're facing in, if you're developing AI for whatever it is, is high is quality data, clean data and, and, and huge amounts of it. And our model, the way it works is we have the data, right? So we have the data is going through us. Uh, all of the day, all day, we have data. So it was never an issue of data. It was more an issue of how do we move to this. Um, so that's on AI. And I'll, I'll go back to this if you, if you like, when we can talk about what AI stuff we have up and running now and what we have in the plans. But at that time, we realized it's a bit too early. We haven't started any AI activity until early 2020. Um, when it comes to radiology, IP, so it's not really about an IP radiology in general, not just AI, I'm just going to go radiology in general now. It's not just about IP, it's about getting your product cleared. It's about regulatory licensing. So for example, we are currently FDA bending. So we're hopefully a couple of months away from getting our FDA clearance. So we'll see about that. Um, but it's about getting the regulatory clearance. So in Egypt, we have to get some clearance for our software. In Kenya, we have to do the same. In Saudi, we just did the same and so on. It's not really IP as it is uh, licensing and clearing of the technology you're using because we're building our technology from scratch. We're not really using any third-party technology that we're licensing. We've been building our stuff from scratch just to fit with our business model. Uh, if you're asking about where it's going, I feel like radiology will be the most impacted field when it comes to AI. But I do not feel like AI is going to replace radiologists in any way, shape, or form. I don't think... This is happening not even maybe in 20 years. But what I see is AI was going to be a tool that's going to be aiding radiologists and in increasing their productivity and helping more and more patients and in increasing the accuracy and rate for the reporting. So it's just going to be one more tool that you use as a radiologist while you're doing your work. And in that, it's a good thing. And, and, and it's not that different from if we're using ChatGPT to draft an email or go through a document and summarize it, or if you're using MidJourney to give you some designs or some images. It's a tool that you use. Um, so what we say at Rology is radiologists who use AI will replace radiologists who don't. But we do not believe that AI in general is just going to replace radiologists.
that that answered the question no and, and it it actually hmm. kind of segues itself uh, well into uh, a follow on question so the radiologist okay. definitely is not going to be replaced by ai that is one but the other thing where technology or or digital comes in 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 particular to to what you're doing there is there is also the 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 white elephant in the room which is basically mm-hmm. the the machine or the the medical equipment and there right. are tons of companies i mean whether you look at the the gees of the world the philips the abbott and the medtronics of the world i mean uh, they are, they are the ones who are who are manufacturing the the machine or the mm-hmm. medical devices and equipment and your software sure. or any software basically sits on top of uh, those equipments how important a stakeholder are manufacturers of those medical devices and and equipments for you oh they they are the the gatekeepers in a way because like you said they the one who make the machines if they change the standards if they change the way they operate then you have to adapt but likely for radiology there is an a standard that has been adopted for ages and it is uh, being followed by all manufacturers regardless of where they are old or new european american uh, asian whatever it is it's the same global standard that everyone uses so it makes it easy for us to be able to integrate with all of this different solution uh, so in that regard radiology has been quite standardized for a while now it's something called to images are done in dicom images it's it's on extension everything is a standard so you can simply just plug into it with ease there is no there is no um compatibility issues in that regard um their importance it doesn't really come from the manufacturer jay it comes more from the infrastructure so if you're ge or the philips or those kind of guys you you're selling your solution to whoever is willing to buy it right you don't have a problem you have the capital for it i'll give it to you for yeah. us for radiology the, the main issue would be the 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 machine itself existing so it becomes more a question of capital of being you know, the machine penetration how many radiology machine is existing in a country for example and what kind of machines because remember it goes from ultrasound which is very basic all the way up to nuclear imaging which is extremely complicated and then you have you have x-ray you have ultrasound you have mammogram you have ct you have mri you have dexa you have spect you have many kind of if imaging all of them are doing different things and imaging different and used in different context so it's more about the adoption of the technology well um, i guess maybe not the adoption but the existence of the technology the availability of the technology so if when you look here in africa you see we don't have that many machines it's growing it's grown rapidly year over year i've been witnessing not just in egypt here in kenya i'm, I'm currently living in kenya i've been living in kenya since um since the beginning of 2023 and i'm seeing more and more i'm, I'm hearing about machines being installed so and it's the same almost all over so that's the main the main um factor for us it's the infrastructure itself really it's not the companies in a sense and it's it's not an easy ecosystem right i mean when you're when you're playing with someone's money someone's life i mean do, uh, mm. education uh, th- those are not very easy industries to to maneuver i mean you yeah. need certain degree of of expertise the, whether it is the use of language uh, the the kind of channels that you use they they're very different than uh, maybe selling to say e-commerce i mean not that e-commerce is an easy business but if you're in a much more serious business of of healthcare uh it it is a, a far more regulated uh, mm-hmm. industry and it's not easy and particularly b2b sales are are never easy and in your case if it is a platform and an extended b2b marketplace of sorts and there are multiple actors like you said i mean 
the ones manufacturing the machines if they act as a gatekeeper it's it's yeah. not tough it's not easy it's it's not easy to kind of break through just like that so if someone were building a digital healthcare or a tech health tech startup in in africa and on the lines where it is b2b similar to yours maybe not competing what are what are some of the things that you would ask those founders to keep a check on or or something that can that they can easily get, get blindsided from oh okay so the first thing would probably apply to everyone not just in health tech which is like you were mentioning before make sure what you're selling is actually what the market wants because so so often as a founders founders tend to be very passionate and we fall in love with our product and we don't realize that no one else is loving our product so i would say build be build something that people want if we want to maybe borrow the mantra from my combinator build something people want that's probably applies to everyone but then specifically for health tech i would say be careful that whatever you're building you should make the connection in your head that this is something that can have an effect on someone's life and when we're saying here it means it could be the difference between life and death so you have to keep your quality standards up no matter what you cannot no matter what the reason you cannot compromise on quality it just it has to be done right if you're not doing it right not only are you going to be harming people directly or and indirectly you will be ending your business because all it takes is you hurting one patient and you're done no matter how innovative revolutionary amazing you are this one slip up will end your business so quality should not be a point of discussion at all which i know is a challenge for us here in africa to be honest because was the it's hard doing business in africa and it's hard doing a startup sometimes we feel maybe a little shortcut not in health tech never do this so i would say don't compromise on quality make sure what you're building what you're promising is what you're delivering make sure you're testing it very 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 good that would probably be the first point the second point would be be patient because e-commerce is hard any startup is hard all business worth doing is hard but health tech it takes time for people to adapt to your work it just takes time for you to get a client on board you may be acquiring a customer in any other b2b business within 2 3 months maybe it takes 4 5 months for any hospital to adapt your solution and we're talking about just any hospital of any size healthcare moves slowly and for a reason as it should move because it should be um scrutinized to make sure that what you're bringing to your patient is the right product so you have to be very very patient you have to make sure the investors you have understand that health tech is different health tech is not fintech health tech is not e-commerce health tech is not so and so it's it's quite different so they have to understand they have to be patient and you know it will take time for you to scale up and to build up it's not going to be an uber it's not going to be an airbnb it's not this kind of business it takes time it's worth it but it takes time it it's we've been doing this for 6 years right it takes a long time to gain the trust of the market it takes a long time to onboard the hospital so make sure the investors you have are in it for the long run they understand the particularity about healthcare and they have patience that's it no that's that's some mm-hmm. some really uh, nuggets of gold or or wisdom that that you shared right i mean it's it's not a, a fashionable business to be in or it's not a business where it's all about valuation it's about the the value that you bring and and also because it's it's so highly regulated it's it's tough like i mean to do any startup is tough but if you're 
dealing with someone's life uh, in it's not just your reputation but if if you go bust that that hospital is going to go bust as well because at the end of the day the, the patient is the the patient of the hospital right i mean uh, reputation kind of precedes or supersedes everything else and in healthcare it is just like several notches above when it comes to to reputation and and that that brings me to to my next question uh, which is all about uh, some of the recognition and uh, awards and accolades that that rology as a company has has received whether it is acting as a finalist for the MIT backed solve or getting into an an nvidia program i mean given that uh, you sit on top of a, a device and 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 hardware and and enterprise iot is a, is a massive one or whether it is getting featured in in leading healthcare reports being named as a as a leading uh, medtech and imaging companies in the world how far have these gone in in building reputation and credibility for rology and ha- do you have an instance where you getting featured or spoken about somewhere or or getting into a marquee program has had a direct kind of effect or impact on securing a business or a client who was otherwise hard or difficult to get by well to be honest with you uh, all of this um accolades have only started to have been there in perhaps the last 18 to 12 months and we've been doing this for 6 years so like i was saying it takes time so um the effect that we've been in for the about four and a half years before we're just building the technology and growing the business steadily and slowly uh, and then you start to get noticed and when you have something that's mature enough tech wise and you have a business that is solid enough then you get noticed and then you start to get all of this accolades um and how it translates to revenue i would say it ha- i really haven't seen it when it have or it has that i called us close a client or onboard a client because we were featured in forbes for example or finalist for the ifc or all of the stuff and no it does add value as investors so it does give trust to investors specifically because what we're doing health tech there is not that many investors in health tech in africa and, and specifically we're doing like you were mentioning a mile a mile deep radiology specifically it's it's not easy to find investors who are willing to go into this or have enough knowledge of this kind of sector that they would be able to make an informed decision so all of this it does help with the investor it instills trust uh, that what you're doing is good it's being recognized by the right people and so on but business wise it honestly i haven't seen it affect in our business yet maybe because it's very recent but so far i haven't seen it helping us close a client or grow or get a deal or any of this stuff yeah and it's it's important that you you kind of bring this out because a lot of times uh, as entrepreneurs and and particularly in in emerging markets i think uh, there is high chance or or possibility that you you digress a little bit when you when you receive these awards and and recognition and, and then you're on top of a mountain of nothing uh, yeah. like you said right i mean uh, trans- something translating into business i think is is very important and Uh, otherwise you're just jumping from stage to stage uh, to receive those certificates and awards top 5 top 50 to 30 under 30 whatever it is but that kind of moves you away uh, or moves away your focus a, a little bit so keeping the focus on on business and and that being the the prime driver i think is is very important a lot of times i think uh, and, and and that's why probably the fact that you've been around for fairly fairly long time uh, building rology and even before that i think it has uh, probably played a role in in keeping you on track and not kind of 
losing focus uh, getting those those awards they are important they are good to have on the website and and probably in conversations like this but it's also important and good to know that all awards and accolades do not necessarily convert into into business sure. Yeah. So that that brings me to my my next question. Uh, what does your your team look like? Uh, you have the, the the thinker or someone who identified the problem. You have the, the engineering brain and the business brain building stuff. But what does the team look like? So you're talking about the the founders or the the team in general, everyone. You know, the, the founding team. I mean, the different skill sets okay. or, or expertise that you bring, but also the the team at large. Right. Okay. So the founding team, um, we had a founder who was have a technical background. So he was acting as our CTO in charge of all of the technical stuff. And then we had our chief medical officer who is a radiologist as well. So this was also one of the co-founders. And then the other two co-founders, me and my co-founder, Amr, our background was mainly business. So we both actually had almost the same expertise or the same experience and background but um, over the time we, we moved to, he, he became more focused on the investment side, raising the investment, securing the investment. And I took more interest into the day-to-day running of the company, acting as a CEO and scaling and building and so on. So, um, and recently it has been where we're going to a new market. His skill set fits more into the penetration of the market, getting us into the market and just getting us the first client and so on. And then scaling that market usually falls to me. So uh, we just have defined where every one of us is uh, the best at. So he's good at penetrating new markets, establishing all of this. And I'm really more good at bringing order and scaling it uh, more and more. So that's for the founders. Uh, as for the white team, um, so uh, right now we're almost at 50, 55 people across three countries. Mostly, I would say there is maybe 40 in Egypt and then there is five here in Kenya and then there is another five in Saudi Arabia. Um, so we, we were in that way, we're, we're almost as you would expect. We have technical team, sales people, business development people, marketing and growth team, support, technical support, medical support. I would say perhaps the only thing different from what you would find in almost any other startup is we do have a team for medical operation. So this is probably a little bit different uh, in that we have a team who's in charge of the quality of setting the protocols and of um, um, setting the protocols of matching which doctor gets which case and at what time and how do we govern the quality of that doctor and how do we track his or her quality, how we keep them, keep them uh, informed of any issues that comes within the reporting. And it's 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 an interesting part because it's it's deeply medical and it's deeply operational in a sense. Uh, so that's probably the medical and operation team is the only team we have that would be different from what you find in almost other startups. Other than that, it's it's really traditional. You have the accounting people, the support people, the sales people, the business development people, and and so on, and the cross team. Of course, and I think the, the, the four co-founders that are that, that you mentioned about and the different skill sets that you bring, uh, I think uh, it's it's great that you have someone who comes from a, a very solid uh, healthcare background who also happens to be the CTO because on the face of it, businesses might might look as a digital business or a or a tech business, but tech is just just an interface or probably uh, the the means to the ends. But at the same time, you need to have 
solid expertise which comes from different quarters i mean business is as important as technology is as important uh, as important as the the core domain expertise and and then you have the functions for which you hire uh, professionals so for anyone who's who's building and who's desirous of of scaling businesses they they need to kind of uh, definitely know this i mean to have that diversity in in team in terms of composition right mm-hmm. at the leadership or the or the founding team uh, but at the same time then you you hire people to to do the job as well so i think that's uh, that's that's a good balance or a, or a good mix so mos that brings me to my my next question i mean you started off in in egypt what are the and you're currently in in kenya in nairobi like you said what are the market that that you guys have been able to expand into over the years right so um, so right now we have about 170 hospitals in general that we're serving um we have markets like egypt kenya and saudi where it's a market that's big enough that we are present in that market so we have our own team on the ground our own people on the ground and so on so that's egypt kenya and saudi and then we have markets where the market is small that we're targeting almost remotely so we'd be happy we're flying in whenever it's needed and uh, we can just target them mainly with marketing and remote selling and so on so that would be um, iraq that would be ghana for a while that would be uh, the drc so overall at about nine countries but i w- i always say like the the main three places is egypt kenya and saudi um and we are from kenya we're hoping to turn kenya into our east africa hub going for tanzania uganda rwanda and so on and uh, from egypt we would be for planning to go for turkey in a couple of years and saudi is of course its own thing just the saudi market is huge and then we're planning also to go for nigeria within the next year so we're up and running or we're serving hospitals in nine countries with three with three countries that have offices and nine countries will be serving hospitals in general and uh, within the next few years we'll be going for nigeria and turkey in that order nigeria is definitely a, a big one but also i mean commendable that give, given that the, the the domain or the the industry that you're in it it takes time from an adoption standpoint yeah. i mean your journey is a, is not a 18 or a 24 month old journey but it's it's been 7 years uh but the fact that we have been able to kind of uh, break into multiple markets within the continent is is commendable and you're still on on a growth path has has any market been different than the other in in any way oh they're all different from each other they're all very different they come with their own challenges and they come with their own um sensitivities and so on um, the one thing you have in common is they're all heavily regulated because it's healthcare so the, the, you have to make sure that you are complying with the regulation from day one you have to be very very accurate about this but they're very different um saudi moves a little bit slowly but it's tends to be more rewarding so the clients or the size of the hospitals tend to be much larger than in egypt and kenya but they move a lot slowly egypt egypt is a market that is heavily contested you have hospitals just in the tens of thousands and you have millions of doctors so that's a heavily market that you need to acquire kenya kenya is an interesting market it sits somewhere in the middle between egypt and saudi it is not as busy as egypt but it's also not as large as saudi um they they really are they are different they are different uh so you have to take your time 
just easily going in the market, understanding what's going on, the way you approach it, how people, uh, how doctors expect their re- reporting to be done. Because you may, you know, I know maybe we'd be thinking medicine, it's all the same. Wherever you go, it's the same, right? And it is from a scientific point of view, but there are different standards of reporting, different styles of reporting, different schools of thought and so on that you have to take into consideration when you are going into a new market. How do you make sure that your doctors are aware that they need to adjust a little bit for this market or that market, the way they write, the way they report, the way they uh, design their uh, interpretations and so on. So yeah, they, they are definitely different. No, that's, uh, that's, that's again, uh, I mean, as much as one may want to kind of uh, think that that having a template and you do a copy paste and it works, uh, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, that's that's the plan that you have in your mind and it's not the the, the reality that you. If only. <laughs> so you you always need to be prepared for. I mean, whether it is from a regulation standpoint, the way business is done, culture, uh, time taken, they they're all different. They're all different from one another. So yeah. I think uh, as much as a lot of people talk about having an Africa strategy. Uh, guess what? Uh, yeah, within Africa, yeah. even within North Africa as a region, uh, beyond the borders, it's 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 a different market, not not the same. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Great. It's, it's always funny when people just go for Africa as this one big place that somehow, whatever they come up with will fit everywhere. Because you know, I mean, we don't, you you know, most people listening for us, I'm guessing lived in Africa or are currently lived in Africa, you know it's very different. Each country, each region has its own way of doing business. And when you come with this generalist approach for Africa, it's you're just you're not gonna be a success. Not only is it simplistic and honestly sometimes a little bit insulting, but it's it's you're not it's not gonna be off. You're gonna be not seeing any results. So yeah, you have to adapt for the market you're in. Well, yeah, I mean uh, <laughs> When, when you when you kind of uh, move over, I mean, whether it is culture, like I said, the, the way business is done, you you need to kind of go as a blank slate, and and probably that's that's the best way to tap into a new market. So we're almost on the clock, and and that brings me to my 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 last question, probably. If you can talk a little bit about your your fundraising journey and one word of advice that you would give to aspiring entrepreneurs in Africa. So two things. Sure. Okay. Uh, I'll try. I'll try to make it quick, but no promises. So um, we started in two thousand. <clears throat> excuse me. In two thousand and eighteen, when we raised the pre-seed round. Um, overall, till today, we have raised a little over three million dollars in general. Uh, that was done for a pre-seed, seed, and then a pre-series A. So three million and all up until a pre-series A. Uh, we've been very fortunate to get the right investors. And this is, I would think, is probably the most important piece of advice is it's not just about whoever is writing you the biggest check. It's about the investor and what are you going to be getting beside the money. The money should not be the only thing the investor is offering because all investors have money. It should be more than just money. If you're fortunate enough to be able to choose, then you should really ask, okay, beside money, what am I getting from you as an investor? Uh, so we've been lucky to have the right investors. We had our early on investor was, and was someone who has very deep technical knowledge, an MIT educated engineer who has built his own startup in his own right and exited, selling it to Intel, um, who someone is very technically deep. And that made sense at that point because we're building a technology from scratch. We need someone who's just deeply technical. 
And then when we were scaling, we started importing investors who can help us more with the commercialization and growing and scaling and so on. Um, so again, like I was saying, $3 million so far. And we're about to start our Series A soon. Uh, and the main important thing I would say is get the right investor who would offer something else beside money and make sure to ask your investor why are they investing in, if we're talking in Africa, why are they investing in your specific country of Africa? What are they looking for? Are they here for the long run? Do they understand? Can they open doors? Can they make connections? All of this stuff is very important. And I would say reach out to just as many investors as you can. Like you would reach out to 100 investors, you'll probably get one of them to actually give you money. So you have to reach out, you have to reach out, and you have to know your numbers incredibly deep. It, just, it has to be like almost instant in your head. You need to know your numbers. Um, this is, I feel, get underestimated, especially if you're raising money early on. You're too focused on your vision, which is fine. At that stage, it's all about the vision because you don't have anything beside an idea and maybe a prototype. So the early on investors are not really expecting you to know that many about numbers and finance and so on. But once you move past this, you need to get yourself some, some accounting literacy and some financial literacy because that's important. You don't have to be an expert, but you should be able to read um, your financial accounts. You should be able to build a simple financial model and financial projections and be able to discuss it with confidence with your uh, investors because remember, they're giving you money to make money, right? So they need to know that you're someone who knows how to steward their money in the right way and who knows how to watch it and how to grow it and how to be accountable for it. So I would say reach out to a lot of investors, make sure you know your number and make sure you have um, some understanding of financial terms and financial literacy and accounting literacy. That's important. You don't just have to be passionate or technically deep. You need all of this other stuff to be a successful uh, entrepreneur to successfully raise money. Yeah, okay, I did it right on time. That's good. Bang on. Thanks, thanks <laughs> for thanks, uh, thanks for your time. Uh, getting to the 12th episode of, of Founders 52 and having our, our first founder from, from Egypt uh, was, was indeed uh, entertaining for, for lack of words because we are creating this content. But uh, what you're trying to do with Rology is, is truly commendable. Uh, and it, it perfectly goes with, I mean, having the, the entrepreneurial grit and determination and and picking a vertical and, and kind of not being kind of wide in your approach, but being very razor sharp and, and going inch wide, mile deep, like I said. And it's it's tough business, healthcare as a whole. But uh, what you're trying to kind of uh, do is is awesome. And I'm, I'm sure that this is, Africa is just the, the first market from a continent standpoint. But I think uh, what you're doing at uh, Rology has, uh, has a huge role to play in, in emerging markets in the, in the global south-south. And as Hindsight Ventures, I mean, we, we'd be more than happy to, to be a partner, be a friend, and uh, whatever we can open up for you, we'll be more than happy to, to do that. Uh, wishing you luck in your, in your journey of, of building Rology and, and scaling it to the next level. Uh, thank, you for, thank you for being our, our guest on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay, for the invite. And thank you to everyone who's listening to us. Thank you for giving us your time. Awesome. With that, I'd like to conclude the, the episode number 12 of Founders 52. Uh, we go live on Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Uh, Nairobi time, East Africa time uh, every week. As the name suggests, Founder 52, we host a founder uh, every Wednesday night, uh, 52 weeks of the year. And this is a freewheeling conversation, a chat talking about. And if you miss it live, you can join our channel on, on YouTube, on 
uh, Apple podcast, on Spotify, where you can listen not only to Moaz, but everyone who has spoken before him. And if you're joining now, the ones that uh, who speak on, on Twitter space with us uh, going forward. Thank you so much. Have a nice evening.